Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it. Like, um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the First Serve. We're back for a Monday night. You're always welcome to join the conversation. one 736 736 or on the text 0433 Thanks to our value partner, Latour. We've got a nice tennis uh, clothing prize pack to give away tonight. Shirts, socks, shorts. Check out their gear at latourtennis.com. Brett Phillips is my name, as always. Joined by the Newcomb medalist, the man with the fastest serve ever recorded. I would say probably never to be beaten in the history of the game, Sam Groth. Good to see you, Grothy. BP, good to be here. I hope you're right. That sounds fantastic, man. I'd love to be the best for a long time. I don't think anyone will catch it, to be uh, They're not, gonna, they're not going to this year, that's for sure. <laughs> they're not going to at all. How's your week been, my friend? It's been good. A little bit of freedom back, which has been nice. Been able to get on the golf course, of course. I played a round with Todd Woodbridge today, which was nice down here on the peninsula. It's been some it? good weather. I'm still down, still down, spending a bit of time by the beach, which is uh, nice. The dogs love it. But, yeah, just a little bit of normality back, which is which has been a real treat. Hit him okay? Yeah, not bad. Good enough. <laughs> tracking, tracking the right way. <laughs> Oh, beautiful stuff. Well, there's uh, plenty going on. We've got a bit to uh, fit into the show, as always. But as we know, Grothy, over the weekend, the suspension of the tennis tour extended through to July 31. No great surprise to all of us. So the ITF, they put out their own statement to include, obviously, the junior, seniors, wheelchair, beach tennis tour, uh, the men's and women's ITF World Tennis Tour events. The ATP also putting out uh, their own statement, which means we'll have... Uh, no Hamburg, Bastard, Newport, where, of course, the Hall of Fame induction is done every year. So Conchita Martinez and Goran Ivnicevic left to wait a year to be officially inducted. Los Cabos, beautiful spot there in Mexico. Uh, Gestad, uh, Atlanta, Kitzbühel, they won't take place as scheduled. Uh, that also extends to the ATP Challenger events. And the, the WTA haven't put out any statement at all. Not sure where the media department is, but they tend not to do everything in accord with the ITF and the ATP. No. And look, you know what, there's some unbelievable events in there. Some, some of my favourite tournaments, unbelievable swing, Newport, uh, Los Cabos, I mean, know the European events. But it's interesting, isn't it, when we're talking through all of this period about the possibility of a merger and the yeah. tours working together, that they still can't align themselves to work out when tennis will be back and, and still operating very separately. So... I still can't see it. Can you? If we're talking about wanting everything under one banner and everything one mm. working together, surely in a time where there's no tennis, it'd be the best time to do it all. And we can't even get a joint statement from the tours in terms of when the the tours going to come back for play. It's not a good look. No, no. If we're going to get a merger, it, it could take uh, well not as long as Palestine and Israel to come together, but it could take a while to actually get everyone on the same page. I think this coronavirus grothy is affecting a lot of people. I think it affected Lisa Curran local government rep over in the US. Let's have a listen to her. Unless they're from the same household has to bring their own tennis balls so that you don't touch other people's tennis balls um, with your hands. You can kick their balls, but you can't touch them. I'm going to blush, sorry. Um, of course, if you're, <laughs> if you're playing with someone in your household, you can touch those tennis balls. Uh, to avoid confusion... <laughs> 
to avoid confusion between whose balls are whose, you can use a marker, like a Sharpie, to mark out to put an X. Yeah, make yeah. sure you get the Sharpie organised. She just couldn't quite get through that. It just She just got engulfed with balls and... The balls went in all sorts of directions. No, you can just you can just see it going the wrong way, can't you? It's, it's yeah, not a uh, not a topic that you know, you've got to be you got to choose your words very carefully. Oh, goodness me! Well, the business model of tennis so different as we know, Sam, to sporting leagues around the world. I did listening to a really interesting chat during the week with uh, Brett McCormack from the Sports Business Journal. Let's uh, take a listen. The number one barrier is like the number one interesting thing about tennis, at least in my opinion, and that's how global it is. Logistically, this would be, I don't know about a nightmare, but at least a migraine. And honestly, I think this has been like one of the things that's been so kind of tiring about all this whole pandemic experience for everybody is sort of like all these logistics that you have to figure out, you know, to do things that in the past would have been easy. So holding a tour is something they've done forever, but you've got to factor in. I mean, for example, I think the, the top 100 of the ATP and the WTA have players from 47 different countries. Um, oh. They play tournament between 30 and 35 countries. You've got, you know, the, the two of the biggest upcoming stretches for the um, for both tours are in the U.S. and China, which have been, you know, the two hardest hit um, places in the world. So, and then you've got to consider all of the specific and unique little um, national and local situations that you've got. You know, for example, you're already seeing, um, I think we've got four events that have been impacted beyond the suspensions of the tours, beyond those, because their local or national government, you know, has, has banned large gatherings until, you know, the end of August. There really is almost too many things to have to work out for, you know, international pro tennis to resume like it was. That's not even getting into the on-site issues, which are substantial. Well, that is uh, Brett McCormack from the Sports Business Journal, which basically just reaffirms, Grothy, what we've been uh, talking about. So if the reason to play, I mean, obviously there's, you know, financial reasons. So just to put this into context, if there's no crowds, I mean, the Grand Slams is what they're contemplating. If the US Open is to go ahead, we think it's unlikely. But a bit like if we use the NBA, for example, so they could uh, exist and make that work off TV revenue. But those smaller tournaments, we're talking the 250s, who don't really benefit from TV coverage. They need people to rock up. They need ticket sales. They need the corporates there courtside spending up, buying their space. Otherwise, there's no point them going ahead, really. Yeah, I mean, it's... You think about the the big events, the Grand Slams, you're right. They're prominent on TV across the globe. No matter which Grand Slam it is, you're going to see it in Australia. But no yep. one's going to turn on St. Petersburg here in the middle of the night, are they? I mean, I'm not even sure if it's mm. broadcast here in Australia. There's, there's certain events, those smaller ones, all of them don't have global TV deals. They might have a local one or they might be just on Tennis Channel in the US because they've got yep. that huge tennis market. But they do. They rely on their sponsorship money and they rely on their big corporate partners being able to go to the event and... You know, soak up that atmosphere. If these tournaments can't have crowds, I mean, they, they don't exist. No, and they stand to yeah, lose significant money. So US Open, we expect mid-June, we're going to find out. But World Team Tennis, Grothy, you're involved yep. in that. What, what's the what's the deal there on the ground over in the US? Yeah, obviously, normally, I think there's eight teams across different cities. You play a three-and-a-bit-week schedule, city hopping every night, basically. But they're trying to pull everyone together, uh, based in one city. They're doing or trying to do a deal, I guess, with the US government right now to base out of one city, provide individual meals for players. But the biggest thing they're going to run into is, well, the US government might be allowing the players in if they can get this deal done right. But how do players get out of the country? I normally work on the broadcast over there. I'm a part of that deal that's going on at the moment. But 
The question is, even if that's allowed, you know, can I get in? Can Nick Kyrgios, who's played for Washington the last couple of seasons, a few matches, can he get out of Australia and get into the US to be able to play this event? And there's a lot of players putting their hands up to want to play because it could be the only tennis played for the rest of the year if they're able to get mm. this up and going. You know, we saw the U- the PGA Tour in the US. They're trying to obviously, if they can do things right, we saw golf actually played there this morning. Yep. So World Team tends to try to operate in a similar sort of vein, I guess, and bring everybody in. But there's still a lot of a lot of questions that I guess yep. are going to come up about that event and how they can run it, especially if the tour keeps cancelling month after month after month. How can another event another event bring international players in and still go ahead? Yeah, it seems like it's almost impossible. But people working overtime to see if they can get some tennis happening uh, this year. So we watch this space, Sam. But let's rewind back to last week's show. We had a great chat with Wally Masua, heading up professional tennis at Tennis Australia, to talk us through this athlete performance review, which has been going on for some time, to try and formulate the best pathway model going forward to develop as many successful tennis players as we can on the world stage. If you did miss it last week, Wally talking about the big takeaways of that review. There's 3,700 affiliated private coaches in Australia. So certainly at the younger space, when you're talking talent, you know, kids 10 to 15, the private sector always felt a little bit disenfranchised because it was quite a centralised model and Tennis Australia were fairly hands-on in that age group. So the idea is is to, um, you know, throw a lot of that uh, development back at the talent stage, back to the private sector. Tennis Australia will certainly invest heavily in players between the age of 15 to 23 and that's the idea behind the, um, you know, centralising everything at the Brisbane Academy and Grothy you'd be very familiar with the old AIS model out of Canberra and this is probably pretty similar a residential model the best players in Australia between the ages of 15 to 23 set up in Brisbane and uh, you know coach driven programs as well as funding and then the idea beyond that if you've kind of simplified is philosophically to try to get to a point where we're facilitating the players to start to make more of their own decisions and invest more in their own programs 24 and above. But look, Tennis Australia will still be involved because tough road to get inside top 100 and we recognise that. So players, it's not like we're going to cut them off the knees at 23. We certainly need to support them. But we'll be trying to direct them more to making some more of their own decisions and and having a bit more leadership in their own programs as opposed to more of a a kind of a a cradle-to-grave scenario that's been going on for a while. Now. So that was Wally Masua just giving us a, a snapshot. We thought we'd grothy tap into that private sector uh, tonight who often have felt marginalised. We wanted to first of all have a chat to Peter Della Vadova, Tennis Australia qualified and registered coach. He's been running the program out at Wonga Park here in Victoria since 1994. A former very good player, if you don't mind. A former under 16 and over 35 Australian champion. He played on the ATP Tour for a number of years, played against some of the uh, very best players and he was ranked in the top 15 men in Australia. Had the honour of playing in both the Wimbledon and Australian Open Championships played the great John McEnroe, amongst many others on the tour. Peter, it's great to have you on the first serve. Hi, Brad. Hi, Sam. How are you guys? Yeah, we're going well. You would have heard what Wally said there, and it was an expanded chat on our show last week. And obviously this review has been going on for some time, that TA, through that centralised model, if you like, had a bit of control of those top-end kids, 10 to 15. What have you made of the review and... Give us a feel for the private sector out there and, and maybe at times been a little bit disenfranchised with the, the player pathway model. Brett, it's a tough one because, look, it's very hard to be able to get all us private coaches on the same path because, you know, I mean, we're all good mates and, and we talk and 
and um, obviously some people have one view and and um, and they've very much got that mentality of um, look if we put in the hard work and then then basically the players are taken from us that sort of mentality I know that's out there I mean all I can do is talk about like personally of um, the relationship that that um, I've had with Tennis Australia has been fantastic as far as with the players that I've worked with and then being able to let them come in, train at Melbourne Park and work sort of part-time with them and and um, also have Tennis Australia um, involved with them as well. That's that's worked really well. Um, look, this is going to be a tough thing for Wally. He's a, he's a really good bloke. I mean, we've been mates since he was 15 and um, it's... It's not easy. Um, I, it's a um, this age group. I, I personally like the feel that um, that the private coaches are going to be able to um, have more say in what these kids are doing. But it's there are some negatives as well, and that's and that's not going to be easy because most clubs and most coaches have got facilities that could look after the players probably from. You know, five in Victoria and um, and beyond. But when you're dealing with the absolute elite player, then um, then that's you're going to need a special program for that particular private coach. And then you have to um, be prepared to go down that way. Yeah, Peter, we had a pretty good chat with Wally. I thought, Brad, it was, it was very in depth, and I went pretty hard at him. I've a good relationship with Wally yeah, as well. Have for a long time and I guess my question is to you as, as a coach in the private sector do you think I know the, the coaches probably haven't been happy with the way Tennis Australia has gone about it in the past or that's been the feeling that I've yeah. or feedback I've sort of gotten but do you think now with a model going to where say at 15 the kids might or the players might be taken to Brisbane that one the coaches are able to provide in the private sector exactly what the players need up to the age of 15 and then will they still feel that they're being taken yeah. away when they've built them up even at a later age now so at 15 they might be the best player in australia and they're still going to be taken away and moved into state yeah sam that's exactly the negative that's the first thing i thought about i mean when you actually deal with elite players as a private coach you have to understand that when you take someone on you take them on and it's not like coaching someone normal you you take on the emotional side it's it's actually quite formatic if you really because every time they have a good day you have a good day every time they have a bad one you have a bad one and it's an emotional roller coaster so you ride that you know you tend to when, when you're dealing with young serious players the first thing a, a coach who takes that player on the first thing you do is you say right okay they're going to need a lot of work which means financially you'll you, you will set up different deals and you will set it up so that, you know, you might coach them early in the morning and late at night and you still run your normal business. But what happens, you really put the, the, the blood, sweat and tears into that player and you'll go and you'll give up your weekends and you'll go and watch them play. And, and like I said, you ride the wave. Now, if you do that, this is the downside. If you do that from the time they're 10 to 15 and then, and then they go to, um, to Tennis Australia and up to Brisbane, yeah, there will be a few coaches that that would probably feel like, okay, these players have been taken from us. But hopefully, there's going to be some sort of some sort of plan that um, that that enables the the coach to feel still attached to 
the player because that is the hardest thing. And part of that relationship has to go back onto the player. Hopefully by the time they're 15 or 16, they yeah. understand if they want to maintain that relationship with a previous coach. I had a lot of coaches when I was playing, and once you separated, a lot of times you actually didn't speak to that coach. There was people you still stayed in touch with, but from a coaching point of view, it's very hard to maintain that once you move into a different environment. And sometimes it it's probably not beneficial from the player to have too many different voices. But, yep. I mean, I guess I, I just find it hard as well. How many of these coaches really think they can build a player post-15 as well and won't want to hold on to that? I think sometimes the coaches have to also understand the limitations and where the opportunities from the players yep. are going to lie post that also. Yeah, and, and you're spot on, Sam. I know, I know even though that I've been involved in tennis for a long time, and I'm, um, at my age, I, I spend, um, well, six weeks in Europe each year for the last four years just so that I can sort of keep up date with what's happening at the engine room, more at the future standard, and also just watching even just the young ones, how they work on a Saturday morning, particularly in Spain and these sort of countries. It's really interesting watching it, and, and you learn a lot as a, as a coach, and um, and. I do know that there will be quite a few coaches that probably will be limited because game has changed. It's changed even since you were playing. Like it's it's just it's just changing all the time. And um, and I know I, I got a chance, and you know him really well. But I got a chance to have a good chat to um, Alex Demonar's mum a few years ago, and she was talking about just those matches that he played in the futures, the four futures leading into before he went and played Wimbledon. He did really well at Wimbledon and lost in the final at Wimbledon Juniors and um, when Leighton really um, saw him and and just that just that grounding of all those tough matches and all that sort of thing, there is there is basically I suppose what we have to do is we've got to look at say I are we keeping our finger on the pulse or maybe it is going to be better to, to sort of have the coaches that, that are sort of um, doing that to look after them? Peter, I've had an interesting chat with a few people in the last uh, week and I'll tell you one comment yep. that was made to me and I want to get your reaction. There's a lot of coaching businesses in Australia and a lot that would be making some pretty good money. They might have, you know, yep. 300, 400 kids in their program yep. but maybe not invested totally in their development and improving their tournament yep. play what would be your reaction to that yeah no well you're spot on Brad. that's that's look you know what i've noticed what i've noticed over the years in the last you know 30 years i suppose the biggest the biggest difference is now is that most most coaches run businesses and they really do a good job a lot better than what you know old dogs like me because what i do is i'm a tennis lover and i enjoy actually teaching people to play tennis, but I enjoy going watching them play a match and then being able to talk to them about that. So to do that, you can't, you, you, you just can't charge people every time that you're going to talk to them or every time you're going to go and watch play a match. You can't do that. So that's the, they're the financial sacrifices you do. I make a lot less money at Wonga Park because I run a, 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 an academy as well as being a club coach. Mm. But so what you do, you, you give up a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot. And you also, you also, you don't, you don't sleep as well because purely and simply you, you know what it's like as a player and you know how much it means to them. And, you know, I, I don't like having to either tell people, look, it might be time that you hang it up or whatever, because, you know, Sam knows as well as anybody that at some stage, you know, like when you either your body's done or you've had enough, you've put a, a lifetime of work into it. Now, yeah. a lot of people that I coach aren't ever going to get to that standard, but still have been as passionate from a very young age to have that. And they're not going to, they haven't done 
well enough to be able to really set themselves up for a future. So they're just starting again. And they've, they've put those four or five hours in every day and have done that. And it's, it, it's, it's a tough grind. It really is a tough grind. And I know that if you do take on players, you have to be prepared as a coach not to... Your, your business, your business will suffer, but it is rewarding. Don't get me wrong, it is still rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Just following up from what you said there, for me growing up, I used to spend time around the tennis courts. So Phil Shanahan up in Albury, I worked with him. Yep. But we'd always yeah, be around guy. the court. So even when I have, wasn't having a lesson with Phil, I might be hitting with another kid. I don't see that yep. when I drive past tennis no. courts in Melbourne. You see a coach on the court getting yep. the hour with a kid that they're paying for. But then you don't have the other yep. kids hanging around and them creating an environment where the players want to be around the tennis court. And I feel like that's where we're missing something right now in Australia. These kids don't want to, or we can't get them around the tennis courts because there is a lot of coaches out there who are running this yep. as a business. And if the kid is not paying them for that hour, they yep. just want someone there who is. And it might be group lessons on the next court or four courts full of hot shots, which is great. We're getting more kids playing, but yep. you've still got to harbour these relationships and these kids around the tennis court so they enjoy the game. And you're right, it does take a sacrifice from these coaches yep. on the financial yep. side to try to raise a player like that. Yep. And look, and what you can do is like, it's it's much harder to get the, the people to network now and, and the parents to network. So say, for example, you might do a Monday night yeah. squad, but then you've got like, say, for example, 12 um, decent players there that could all on that Monday night organise to hit on Tuesday, Wednesday, no Thursday. No one wants to get beaten by somebody else no in their one, age group when it's not in a tournament, No one they? wants to. No one does. No one does. So you won't get that. So what will happen is then coaches have been smart enough to think, oh, wait a minute here. What they'll do, even when they're not having a private lesson, what we'll do is we'll get our assistants to give them a hit and we'll charge them for a hitting session. Now, that, that's that's more common now than getting somebody roughly your same standard to go out there and um, and play. And, like, as coaches, we'd be quite happy for them to, to hit on a court not far from us and, you know, we're happy to look over and see how it's going and that sort of thing. But it's much harder now to get that networking going. And I, I genuinely, as a coach, worry that, you know, when this 10 to 15 age group, it, it, when you start out with a serious player, the, the, the journey starts with a conversation that mm. the, the family will come and you'll sit down together and say, and you'll say, what do they want? And I'll say, listen, I want my, my child to be a professional tennis player. And then you've got to go, right, now what worries me is at the moment the way it's set up, particularly in Australia, I worry that financially, I don't know how people are going to do it. unless you become you a doctor. <laughs> mate, I'm telling you, unless you've got the, the talent of like an Ash Barty or a Nick Kyrgios where you've just got that much talent, I don't know because to, to forge a career out of professional tennis and to what you have to go through till you get to 15, the money that's invested, the way it's set up at the moment... And then what's beyond it, and you know better than anybody what you've got to do to get through futures and then get through challenges and get to this, you know, get to the ATP tour. Um, well, it's, 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 it's pretty scary. And it, that, yeah. that conversation, I'm worried. I'm worried, guys, that what's going to end up happening is our funnel, uh, the, the funnel that feeds, you know, it's going to be so effective because 
it's it's not a it's not something that you you feel really excited about telling a, a parent that wow this is really what you're going to do and and if you want to tell them the truth it's a bit scary. Peter, we need a, I reckon an, an hour just to talk to you. We're going to come <laughs> back and I reckon Sorry, do a guys, part I, two. I, I ramble away. No, all good. It's all great stuff. And I had another conversation with someone over the weekend who said, well, we're not generally early maturers. Yes, we might have a young Alexi Popper and a young Alex Demon all going well, and Ash Barty in her early twenties winning a Grand Slam. But you now that whole college pathway discussion comes into it as well but we can go into that at another time really appreciate your insights and we'll watch this space with great interest awesome great to talk to you guys peter delavadova the great john McEnroe, and in fact he's highlights he had a narrow loss to the world number five uh, grothy roscoe tanner that was two weeks before tanner lost to beyond borg in the wimbledon finals so he's been around and he beat my man who uh well back in another lifetime when i wasn't so au fait with tennis i might have gone on air at 233 in the morning and called him guy forget instead of uh, Guy Forger. We're going to take a break. The first serve, it is your home of tennis. Thanks to Top Agents Real Estate. If you're looking to buy, rent, sell, have their property investment managed, make contact with Dave and his team in the office tomorrow, 955-84599 or their website, top-agents.com.au. The first serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back, Brett Phillips. Sam Groth with you as we race through a Monday night, your weekly uh, fix of tennis. one 736 if you want to join the conversation. Grothy and I tapping into that private sector of tennis tonight on the back of Wally Masua, head of professional tennis, joining us on the show last week, telling us about the review and how it's going to uh, be changed in terms of that 10 to 15 age group being looked after more by the private sector. Tennis Australia really getting involved and in investing between 15 and 23 and beyond 23 the players really taking control of their careers. We've had a great chat with Peter Della Vadova, well-renowned uh, tennis coach. We also wanted to welcome in Glenn Busby uh, tonight, of course. Down there at Magnificent Kuyong, he's been an elite coach for over 40 years, uh, still playing some great tennis, had all sorts of success on the ITF Seniors Tour. Glenn, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks for uh, asking me on. Good to be on. Glenn, I'm not sure if you heard the chat there with Peter Della Vadova, but like uh, Peter, you're also a very experienced coach. Um, you know, you've been running the uh, the Kuyong Academy for uh, for quite some time. What have you made or what's your understanding of the uh, performance review that's been conducted by TA? Because we really wanted to tap into that private sector tonight to get your view on how it's all potentially shaping up. Yeah, look, uh, Dell has got his finger on the pulse. I mean, he knows what's going on, and he's actually, you know, with his son and, and all the young kids at the moment, uh, he really has a a, um, a great response. I listen to it all. Um, look, I guess going back from years ago, you had um, all state squads and, and zone squads were at, at the local areas, and, and it gave coaches some acknowledgement. It gave them some credibility, I suppose, for all the work and effort that they put in. Um, and, and I look from a coaching perspective, you've got, let's say you've been working with a kid for five years, um, you've probably made, if they're a top player, you've probably made 50 cents an hour by the time you think about all that emotional time that invested, the, the phone calls going to tournaments and not getting paid. And traditionally what has happened is uh, you've worked with this kid, got them to one of the best players in Australia, and then they've just been taken away. And uh, so it's like, well, why should I? Why would you want to do that? Because there's nothing better than having a goal of saying I want I want to work with this player all the way through, and and you know to be able to sit in a Grand Slam coach's box and 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 know that you've had a huge investment in this player and they've done really well is one of the the greatest joys of coaching. Um, so 
I think going back to the uh, um, the local areas will be fantastic for the coaches and and the clubs themselves who who start to see some good players around. Uh, Glenn, I do have a question on, on based on what you just said there. Doesn't a good yep. coach though get the reward from the player getting the success? It's not about you sitting in the box if oh. a player goes another direction. It shouldn't be about you sitting in the player box at Wimbledon. It should be the fact that you've been able to help a player get to that stage. Oh, 100%. It's all about the player. It's not about the coach at all. But I'm just saying that what happens is that someone invests so much into a player um, and then, you know, for that to be taken away, I just know from coaches that have uh, talked about this quite a lot that they've then gone and said, well, why should I invest all that time into someone if they're just going to be taken away, whereas perhaps I could take them through to another level um, and and they lose all that time that's been invested in them. Um in, in, in just like a, a flick of a switch. Yeah. Whereas, you know, maybe, maybe you know, uh, there are other ways to do it. Maybe the, the, the coach could have been still involved in that player's development uh, in, in certain pathways in, in the past. Um, you know, I mean, I'm still a, a great believer in, in, in the coach knows that if he's been working with someone for five years, he knows how they, what happens when they lose, when should you talk to them, how should you talk to them, what's happening in matches. They know exactly what's going on. And, and so, you know, for that to be taken away and then someone else to look after them, a lot of times the players go down before they actually go back up again. Um, under this new system, do you still think there's going to be a bit of that feeling, though? If a, if a player at 15 years of age, they're obviously going to be given the choice. And from a parent's point of view also, if they've got the opportunity to move into a support system, do you feel, still feel like there's going to be a little bit of that feeling from these coaches? Yeah, look, look. there's a couple of things. I know a lot of coaches who've, who've said, look, I'm not going to work with elite players anymore. It's just not worth it. Um, uh, I'm just going to, to run a big business. And they've done fantastic jobs at running a business rather than developing talent. Um, you know, as Dale was saying before, it's it's unbelievably expensive to uh, to get a player um, to to be an elite player in, in the world. I mean, when you look at the cost of lessons and travel and uh, uh, equipment and, and everything, and, and it's like, you know, they need the support from uh, Tennis Australia. There, there's no doubt that they need support. How it happens, though, there may be different mo- um, different ways of doing it. Um, so, uh, you know, if a player might. For instance, say, look, I, I really would love to go and um, uh, go up to Brisbane and, and, and live up there. I mean, you know, let's face it, it tennis is about travelling and, and, and seeing, you know, new things all the time. So um, maybe that's great for their development. But uh, I guess, you know, in, in trying to make it more localised, I just think it's a, a great for the clubs and, and great for uh, tennis in itself. Glenn, just for those listening in, I'm the SEN uh, sports fan, uh, those who maybe don't, you know, follow the whole pathway and understand the intricacies of it all, do I glean from you and, and maybe other conversations I've had along the journey that you think maybe the quality of coaching at the private sector is is better than what Tennis Australia have been offering? Do I do I get well, that sort of impression across just the the the, uh, the private sector coaches? Um, big question. Uh, it's I think, you know, when, when you develop a player you and you've had them for five, ten years, whatever, and uh, you know exactly 
um, well, they've got to say that one of the top players in Australia. You, you, you put it all together, you know exactly how they, they feel, how they play, you know everything about them. And then all of a sudden, they go into a system where things may be changed, modified for no, no need to. Um, uh, look, I've had experiences of that. Um, and, and it's very, very frustrating um, as to why things get changed and, and how things get changed. And, um, and maybe the, the private coach is just cut out of that completely. Um, whereas, as I was saying before, there's probably a better system where the, the private coach can still be involved um, in, in the development of the player, even if they're in um, uh, a Tennis Australia program. Glenn, obviously time is uh, evaporating on our one-hour block that we get on a Monday night. I do appreciate you coming on and giving us some insights. We're going to watch this space. Obviously, COVID-19 just sort of puts a, a few things on pause to uh, fully push this through this year. But there is a change will it be a better change i suppose we all have to uh wait and see but appreciate you giving us some time no problem at all good on you guys glenn busby uh well-renowned coach uh, elite tennis coach down there at kuyong what do you take away before we go to the break we've had peter delavadova glenn busby grothy what do you take away from the chats tonight yeah, I mean, it's a tough one, isn't it? I think in, in any situation, someone's always going to be a little unhappy. Um, I think in the end, we want everyone to work together, Tennis Australia, the private sector, but it's got to, in the end, be about developing the game of tennis and how we build it, our sport here when it's competing with AFL and NRL and cricket and all these other sports. And then now also with the growing women's sport with AFLW and all that side as well. But also, you've got to keep the players happy. In the end, if you're trying to get a player to the top mm-hmm. 100 in the world, it's not about Peter Delvedover or Glenn Busby or you or me or Tennis Australia. It's about what's best for that player. And that's what sometimes I feel is or missed in this whole merry-go-round of uncertainty and happiness with the private sector and Tennis Australia. Okay. We'll come back and continue to pull that apart because the other issue that when we put this out on social media yesterday we actually got some great responses we're going to collate all those and break it down on our show next week we're just not going to have enough time tonight but we asked and you asked it last week grothy about having a beefed up domestic competition here in australia not just a short-term substitute we believe we're going to get some sort of domestic competition in the back six months of this year but a long-term solution to try and create more interest outside of january give more players a chance to build a pro career so we will touch on all that next week. Been some great response right across our social media uh, platforms. We've got enough time to go into it tonight, but we're going to continue to explore that as well. The development of the player and then having a tour here that can really get them on their way before they have to meet all the costs of going uh, overseas. Yarra Tennis Coaching, speaking of the private sector, Melbourne's award-winning coaching program at Eaglemont since uh, 2002, 20 teams, junior and adult programs, along with private lessons available, uh, back open this week, yarratennis.com.au. You're listening to The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Oh, if only the microphone was on during the break. Uh, some great banter between uh, Grothy and I. You're doing a lot of the talking, uh, Sam. You're fired up uh, tonight. We do need a two-hour show. There's a lot to pull apart, dissect, but we've got time to do it. We're going to continue every uh, Monday night and just uh, break it down. But we're going to change tact a little bit, Grothy. Can you believe, and you're only a very young man, but uh, International Tennis Hall of Famer Gabriella Sabatini turned 50 uh, this weekend. Now, I can still see Gabriella Sabatini just carving it up it's almost like she never aged and if you if you look at her now she has not aged one bit former world number three won the us open 1990 you were just two so you wouldn't have great memories of that 88 wimbledon dubs 27 titles singles 14 
doubles titles, uh, twice WTA finals winner, great wins against Never Had a Lover, Everett, Graf and Seller. So she was in that great era. $8 million in prize money. But I reckon this is a great message that she actually said at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I think it was last year. I was a very introverted person and wasn't easy for me to relate to others. Tennis has exposed me to so many things in such positive way that perhaps I wouldn't have experienced if it wasn't through tennis. Today, I am convinced that tennis is not only a sport, it is giving you the opportunity to open your mind, to travel all over the world, to get to know people and relate to others, to have a commitment and responsibility, to grow and mature at, at an early age, to face and overcome obstacles, all of which I can apply in my everyday life. All of these things have made me the person that I am today. That's why I am so grateful to this sport. So there you go, Sam. Regardless of what level you get to, because not everyone's going to get to the top, and we talked there with a couple of coaches about the expense and the journey you've got to go on, the parents, the investment they've got to make in their child, and it might not turn out to be a you know a career that really flourishes but that more holistic view of what it can actually do for you as a person yeah and you learn a lot about yourself when you're out there on tour and you're spending 35 weeks away from home and you've got to learn about as an 18 year old or a 17 year old budgeting and finances and contracts and signing management deals and hiring coaches and you know you grow a lot as a person on the tennis tour and you do it for the first you know, 30, 35 years of your life, really, and it, and it does. It does define a lot, a lot of, of what who you become. It was very interesting listening to that her, her speak there, Gabriella. Uh, she's an absolute beauty. Lives in Switzerland uh, these days, so she's totally neutral. Did you catch a bit of Nick Kyrgios and Andy Murray, the bromance? I didn't catch too much of it. Live on social media over the but weekend. Nick's, Nick's try, you're uh, trying to get everyone to speak to him at the moment. Uh, it's, it's candid. It was loose. Went through a bottle of red wine. Let's have a listen. I'm not going to make this controversial, but I think, like, honestly, I think you're better than Djokovic, in my opinion. People are going to take this to social media and be like, nah, Djokovic won this many slams. And I'm like, Djokovic was playing dodgeball on my serve. He couldn't return it. And you're on it and you're like, nah, I'm slapping it for a winner. So, like, there's my opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the results would probably suggest otherwise, wouldn't they? Yeah, but, yeah, but the real ones, no. Like, like Djokovic, you know, he, he wrapped it up in his dodgeball gear and he was trying to dodge my serve the last two times I played him. But you, you were on it like a light. I couldn't get it past you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need Elliot Lady to step in. I mean, Andy it's interesting. just being it down. He, uh, he does like to wind up a few of those top guys, though, Nick, doesn't he? Novak and Nadal. And I know he's put it out there to try to get one of those three, the, th the big three, to speak to him on his Instagram live. And I know Nadal fired back a little bit saying maybe he needs to find somebody his own age and try to build a rivalry with them. Any merits to that? take. Murray better than take. Djokovic? Oh, well, look, it's hard to go past uh, Novak. Their record does <laughs> does speak fairly well. I think Murray's lost, what, five Aussie Open finals. But Murray, unbelievable player, don't get me wrong, but Novak's uh, his record's pretty good. Hey, he also said in that chat, we can't play the whole lot uh, tonight. He was talking about, actually, Team Europe's Labor Cup players who have no fun, no banter, don't care for each other, act like they uh, care for each other one week. Let's be honest, Sitsipassen's very hate each other. Then they are besties all of a sudden. I can't stand it. Do you think me Dominic team would vibe. I'm more interested in a nice cocktail, but team would be more interested in watching paint dry. It's just a different vibe. He's a different character, Nick Kyrgios, isn't he? Oh, I don't know. Some people are going to take this the wrong way, I guess. We, we saw a great side of him during the summer, but yeah, it's 
maybe just firing up a little bit of controversy before the tour kicks off again at some stage? Oh, I like honesty uh, because uh, too many uh, save it for a book uh, post uh, their tennis life. If you want to do it while you're playing, uh, that's okay. I mean, the only issue I have is that uh, he may never reach his full potential, so I get a bit annoyed by that. Uh, great that you can be a bit of a comedian, be an entertainer, but uh, if you're going to sit at number 30 in the world for the rest of your life, uh, no skin off my nose, but I often think that's a waste of talent. So I'm going to gravitate to those who probably just give absolutely everything get the best out of themselves. Starting from scratch, talking about getting the best out of yourself, they offer premium glass repair. They specialise in the removal of window scratches, bringing it back to its former glory, whether it's scratches in the sliding door that your pet dog has caused, the local milk bar that has a bit of graffiti uh, tag with a knife, they can remove it. They're a magnificent company doing great business during this uh, COVID-19. Starting from scratched.com.au, our final break, back to wrap up. The First Serve. Your home of tennis. Welcome back to the first serve, our last little segment for this uh, Monday night. Last week on the show, Grothy, we had 15-year-old uh, Eddie Winter from Adelaide on the show. Number one ranked male Aussie in his age group from Australia in the ITF rankings. Do you feel any expectation with that? Obviously, we've got such a rich history here of tennis in Australia. Do you, do you feel any pressure with being the best in the country? Look, I mean, I try not to focus too much on that and the rankings. Basically, if I just keep working as hard as I can, keep training the way I'm going, hopefully that stuff takes care of itself normally. Yeah, obviously, Australia's got a great history in tennis. So I just wanted to bring that back up and back over that interview, Grothy, because it's, it's a huge journey, as we know, uh, through the tennis ecosystem. To, just to give it some glory, global context. So Edward Winter is the 25th ranked 15-year-old. At the top of that list is a young man from Hong Kong, not a uh, powerhouse tennis nation. Uh, Shuck Lam Coleman Wong, he's a big boy, he's about 190 centimetres, who's already got himself an ATP ranking in the 1500s. So players ranked higher than Eddie are hailing from non-tennis powerhouses such as Paraguay, Cyprus, Portugal, Thailand, South Africa, Syria and Turkey. It's a big tennis world out there, isn't it? I mean, they, you know, there's two 15-year-olds who are sort of miles apart, taking nothing away from Eddie, because as no. someone said to me over the weekend, we're sort of later maturers here. We might, He might develop yeah. later than someone else across the other side of the world. And it, it fits in well, doesn't it, with this whole conversation we've been having over the last couple of weeks. He's a player right in that age group where, under this new system, he's, he's going to be taken in and possibly moved up to Brisbane, and, you know, and, and we've been having some discussions off-air here in these breaks, and, you know, I think just with me personally, it's really sort of hit a spot tonight and going back to this private sector, but where does it all fit? Does the player get taken at 12 or at 15? And Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot, isn't there, to, to un, unpack in, in the few, next few weeks. Yeah, we'll continue to do that here on the first serve on a Monday night. Also, check out our podcast, Crunching the Numbers, with Mark Safoulis and Shane Leonage. That is going beautifully, episodes 1 to 10. Aussies only. Great chat with Storm Sanders over the last week. I, I urge you to have a, a listen to that. She's been on an incredible journey through injury the last two years. Thefirstserve.com.au forward slash podcast. Thanks to 100 Words, a network of active local communities with the aim of improving men's mental health and reducing male suicide. Check out their great work at 100words.com.au. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Have a good week. Hook up a feast. We'll catch you next Monday night at 6. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.